Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is King Williams, and you are listening to the Neighborhood Watch podcast. Uh, this podcast will be changing over come January 1 a little bit. So there will be the Neighborhood Watch and the Neighborhood Watch interviews. It may be called Neighborhood Interviews. I'm not sure yet, but expect a change. Uh, what you should know from that, though, is that I'll be having a new podcast that's starting up this month called the King Williams Podcast. And what this is going to be is an audio version of my newsletter. So it's going to include the Red Play News section, which is a way for a lot of people to get caught up very quickly about news in our good old state of Georgia, as well as a bit of news internationally or nationally as well. Um, but it's going to have a larger focus on the deep dives that come from my newsletter, which is IamKingWilliams.Substack.com. So again, IamKingWilliams.Substack.com. And it's going to be really cool. I really think you will enjoy it. But if you don't, that's really great as well. So just let me know. I really would love the feedback. And so again, the King Williams podcast is going to be our history about deep dives, about news, and trying to get it to you for in less than an hour. Um, each and every episode, most episodes will be about 30 minutes. So I really hope that you enjoy it. So really, for amount of time it takes you to order and receive a pizza, you can hear a lot of great information about our great state of Georgia, as well as a lot of great contextual deep dives. And so if you haven't already, please subscribe to my newsletter at IamKingWilliams.Substack.com. And if you want to stay with the Neighborhood Watch, you don't have to switch over anything. Just stay here on this channel. Um, as the King Williams podcast comes out, I will let you know where it will be at. And more importantly, this episode and all episodes of Neighborhood Watch Podcast and the King Williams Show are brought to you by local, I'm sorry, and the King Williams Podcast are brought to you by Local Plus. And Local Plus is your source of news, information, creativity by Atlanta and for Atlanta. It's Atlanta's first Atlanta-specific streaming service, and I am really excited to be a part of it. So I have a show in there called The King Williams Show, and I really hope that you enjoy it. So we'll take it from there. Uh, once again, Local Plus, that's G-O-L-O-C-O-P-L-U-S. So go Local Plus, G-O-L-O-C-O-P-L-U-S dot com and get ready for the King Williams Show, the King Williams Podcast, and changes to the Neighborhood Watch. So now this is our interview with Matt Westmoreland. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is King Williams, and you are listening to the Neighborhood Watch Podcast. If you heard the intro, then you know... Um, my guest today is going to be Matt Westmoreland. And in particular, the reason why I'm excited to talk to Matt is I've actually interviewed Matt before. Um, there was an interview I did, I think, in, I don't know now, 2019. It's actually a good interview. And for those on Patreon, I may put that up. It's a good interview. It's a good interview to know who Matt is as a person. Um, and I actually enjoyed that interview. But because of a lot of transitional things, I was about to leave Sephora at that time, the place I was writing at, and some other place. I just never put it out. Um, it's a good interview, so if you're on Patreon, you get a chance to listen to it. Um, I really think it's worth listening, especially now, two years later. A lot has happened in both of our lives for the most part, especially Matt's, as he is currently um, Atlanta City Council's youngest member of the council and um, provided his win again in November. Uh, he may actually be not the oldest anymore, but I think that it's important that we talk to Matt because he represents a new generation of people on city council. Um, a millennial base of people, something that the city of Atlanta really has needed. And we talked a lot about that in our first interview. And so today we're going to talk about a lot of things um, related to Atlanta, related to the elections, related to Matt as a councilman. And I think this is really instructive for everyone who wants to learn things. And so um, I will say this, Matt is also a pretty good person from what I've met in real life. I met him, we met quite a few times, we've talked quite a few times, and he's always been open and transparent about everything. And so I'm glad that he decided to bring that transparency back to the audio podcast, because maybe if you haven't lived under the rock, a couple of things have shifted in the political landscape over the last six months in the city of Atlanta. Um, so without further ado, here is Matt Westmoreland, uh, Atlanta City Councilman and future, future, I got to say this now, future member of the Get Fit Club that I have with another one of my guys, Chris Perella. <laughs> Polaro, <laughs> sorry. And we'll be starting that up soon. All right. So thanks for coming on, Matt. Absolutely, man. It's good to be back. Um, always, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation and looking forward to getting in shape. You are speaking that into existence. I look forward to coming next month. All right. There we go. Um, all right. So let's get into it in shorthand. Who is Matt Westmoreland? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks for, for the invite back. Um, it has probably been two years since I've listened to our last conversation. So I will definitely go back and do that again. 
Um, who is Matt Westmoreland? So I'm, I'm born and raised in Atlanta. Uh, I came up through Atlanta public schools, I'm a 2006 graduate of what is now Midtown High. Um, went away to college and then came back and spent the best four years um, teaching history down at Carver High School uh, in Southeast Atlanta. Um, ran for an open seat on the school board eight years ago uh, and served for four years with a new board and new superintendent uh, and then finishing up um, four years on the Atlanta City Council. That works. And so uh, now in the last, oh gosh, you've been here now for a few years on City Council. I got to ask you first before we get into what has changed between the time in which you first came in and where we are now? Yeah, um, it has been in uh, uh, four years, unlike any other, frankly. Um, you know, the, the last 18 months with the pandemic, um, the marches and, and, and really tense conversations that we had last summer um, around public safety. Um, you know, the, even the cyber attack that, that hit and crippled the city um, way back in the spring of 2018 seems like a lifetime ago. Um, it's been, um, you know, we've lived through the Donald Trump presidency and, and, and segued into, into a Biden one. Um, and so there's absolutely been no shortage um, of topics to tackle here at City Hall and, and everything else that's been happening around the world. All right. And so I think that this is, you know what, uh, if this was any other four years, I think we would be having very different conversation. I think it would be a much more incremental conversation. And I think that the last four years in particular for any politician in the U.S. has really tested, I want to say they're really where their, their, their stances are, their morals are. And, and just really, it's been a, a rough go at it. And I'm, I'm going to be clear about this across whatever political perspective, it seems to be that this is not the four years that anybody anticipated. And mm -hmm. so now we're coming into what may be a new normal. And I want to pick up on this new normal for a minute because we're in Atlanta. We're in the midst of a very interesting election season to say the least. <laughs> um, how has the new normal affected your ability to be on the city council and also relate to your constituents? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I'll tell you that as, as a council, um, we stopped coming into City Hall and, and having meetings in person like the rest of the world back in in March of 2020. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it is um, when you serve in a legislative body like this one and you have 14 colleagues, the inability to literally see and touch and sit down with and spend time with your colleagues um, has been really challenging, frankly. Um, you know, all of our meetings are, are virtual now. Um, and so whether you're um, trying to build relationships um, and, and trust um, and spend time with, with your colleagues um, or whether you're working to try and improve legislation, um, the fact that we're all in 15 different places um, has made that really challenging. Um, you know, at the end of tough council meetings um, in the past, you're always kind of literally sitting there right there next to your colleagues and, and can can um, kind of spend some time together. If you are on a different side of an issue than a colleague, um, you're, you're right there together. Um, and that hasn't been true for the last 18 or 19 months. Um, it's also made it harder to interact with and engage with constituents. Um, I mean, you know, the, the life of a citywide elected official, if you want it to be, can be a, an exceptionally busy one. Um, there is no shortage of, of events taking place around town or residents who want to meet up either one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. Um, and to have all of that transition, at least at the beginning, into a virtual format um, is still something that, that we're, um, you know, that we haven't obviously moved fully back into the way things used to be. Um, when I think about visiting churches all around town um, or going to different neighborhood um, festivals, um, it's just the opportunity to, to commune with the half a million folks who call Atlanta home has been seriously altered over the last 18 or 19 months as we were going through trauma, frankly, um, whether it's a global pandemic um, or a rise in violent crime, 
Um, we've seen a deterioration in city services and, and really tight labor market that's led to really high vacancy rates in certain departments. It's been making it hard for us to, to carry out the, the basic functions of, of government um, with reliability that our residents expect. Um, and so, you know, I think the impacts of a global pandemic and an uneven economic recovery, um, a city that had really wide income and really low social mobility rates to begin with, schools closing, you know, as someone who taught high school, um, for school houses to be closed for a year, um, the ramifications on society today are real, but the impact that that's going to have on kids will last a long, long time. So you're right. There's just been an incredible amount going on um, that is, that's been really challenging. And it brings me to something now, which is in many ways, it feels like you've probably aged like mentally probably like 40 years and four. <laughs> um, yeah. And I say this because now Atlanta is very different, right? And so one of the things that has changed, and we just kind of got to walk into this one a little bit, is the relationship over the last 18 months between, we're going to talk, I don't want to call this crime, but this entire section is going to be about law enforcement crime and the narrative of crime, right? And people know I have been very vocal about what is narrative and what's fat. Yeah. Um, I'm working with Georgia State University's uh, Department of Criminal Justice to kind of break down a lot of the, the data of what crime is saying on those things. And there's some interesting things. And so one of which I want to start first is about 16, 17 months ago, there was an incident. Um, if you lived anywhere in the world, you know what we're talking about. Um, that happened on May 25th. 2020. Um, within one week, we had more protests in U.S. history than we've had since 1968 with the, the murder of Martin Luther King, the murder of uh, our Robert Kennedy, and that entire political year of 1968. And so Atlanta was one of those cities that caught up in it as well. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is we know within the 30 days of May 25th and June 25th of uh, 2020, a couple of things happened, one of which we had um, Atlanta's own incident of people vandalizing CNN Center and then an unrelated incident of people vandalizing in Phipps Paws on that same day. We had the murder of Rayshard Brooks um, in South Atlanta. We also had two AUC students who were tased on camera by several police officers. And we then saw a deterioration between the relationship of the current mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, as well as the Atlanta Police Department. Now, I want to be clear. We are not insinuating anything at this point that Matt had anything to do with this, but I do think it's important to level set we're about to go next. There's two things I want to ask you, Matt. We're going back to last year. One, um, 17 months ago, Atlanta is really on the precipice of, of going the wrong direction real fast. And so there was a vote, and that vote was to defund the police. And can you explain what happened on that vote and what it was like on city council? Sure. Um, well, the first thing I want to point out is that there wasn't actually a vote to defund the police. Um, okay, and good, I, good. I think, yeah, no, so that, you know, as I think about, um, and I appreciated your intro in terms of um, kind of whether we call it crime or public safety or just however we kind of frame or think about whatever this or these topics are. Um, you know, I, it the month of June 2020 um, just completely rocked this city, every single corner of it. Um, you know, whether it was, there were parts of it that were incredibly inspiring, I'll say, you know, as someone who went and spent time um, with crowds that, that built up outside city hall peacefully. Um, and then those, the marches that took place on what felt like a nightly basis around town and, and young folks, especially. And I, I say that as someone who at the time was 32, 33, um, and again, as a former teacher who, who saw former students marching down 10th street, um, there were parts of that month that were incredibly powerful and inspiring. Um, and then there were parts of it that were absolutely gut wrenching. Um, and so as you sit as a policymaker, um, the reality that we were in was that the month of June is also when cities across the country, ours included, are building their and passing their budgets for the next fiscal year that starts on July 1st. Um, and so, you know, we were 
in the two weeks after Rashard Brooks, um, we're in a position where we needed to pass a budget um, to run the city starting on July 1st, um, while we were also wrestling with many of the incredibly um, delicate, fragile, sensitive, whatever word you want to use, um, kind of realities that, that we were all facing as a community and as a country at that time. So I say all of that to say what we did have a conversation in that final week of June as we were getting ready to pass a budget and the conversation started. And if you go back and if you read the resolution that um, had started that week with 11 co-sponsors um, and, and the amendment that was proposed to the budget that did not pass, what it said um, was, you know, we're passing, we have to pass a budget by the end of this month. We are going to pass a budget that fully funds the police department at the level that had been discussed during all of our budget conversations in April and May. Um, and this, these last several weeks have showed us um, that we have to look deeper um, within ourselves about kind of how we view and frame and allocate money as it relates to crime or public safety. Um, and we haven't. We don't really, over this, the next five days, have a chance to do as deep a dive um, into our how we spend our public safety dollars as we want. Um, and so the resolution said we're going to ask the chief operating officer to come back to spend the next four months doing a really deep dive and examining um, how we spend each of the 230-odd million dollars that, that go to the Atlanta Police Department and then to come back to us in four months um, and present kind of the findings and the um, what that review and analysis has found, and then have a conversation as a legislative body um, about whether, based on that review, we thought there should be um, dollars that should be reallocated or moved to be spent on something else or increased, as one of my colleagues who was an original co-sponsor said he thought might be the case. Um, and then at that time, take additional legislative action on moving those dollars around. Um, and I think you know, it got framed as a as a defund effort, um, and frankly, it. I think that there's someone who probably could say, you know, why are you taking you you passed a fully funded police department budget, which we did, and you're going to take four months, which maybe someone thinks might be too long, and there were going to be initial or a, a additional conversations before any dollars were actually moved, um, and so to kind of wake up in the day and two and three after that. And here, things like the Atlanta City Council came within a vote of defunding the police. I think it it um, destabilized a lot of people. Um, and frankly, um, there were a number of folks who thought we hadn't acted aggressively enough in the path that we had laid out. Um, and so I know that was kind of a long and, and rambling answer. But, you know, as someone who signed on to, helped write, and voted for um, an amendment that ended up failing, the intent um, was to look really hard at how we were spending our dollars, but do it over a timeline that was um, that was uh, thoughtful. Um, and then to come back and be like, all right, now we know exactly where each of these dollars is going. What do we think needs to change? And if we think changes need to be made, we're going to vote on those changes. Um, and that, frankly, that never really happened uh, because the amendment failed and it got framed as being a defund effort. And then we, you know, time moved on, frankly. Um, I will say that as I think about um, kind of where we are now and where we go moving forward, um, I think we expect and ask too much of police officers. And I think that's actually something that probably 100% of people agree on. Wherever you fall on the spectrum in terms of criminal justice reform or public safety or crime, um, that police officers, sworn armed officers are doing too much. Um, and so whether that's a conversation about sending um, specially trained people to certain situations that, that don't really require the response of an, of an armed police officer, um, whether it's, you know, taking the pre-arrest diversion program that had been a pilot, um, but in that same budget, we actually expanded it to be citywide. Um, I'll caveat that by saying that at the moment, 
you know, that option is open to folks from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday, um, which means it's not open overnight and it's not available on weekends. And so as we think about, you know, how do we best handle a whole bunch of different situations and who do we need to send um, to deal with people who might be having mental health or substance issues? Um, you know, how can we allow our police officers to focus on the things that they should be focusing on um, in sending teams or people out to better help um, with the needs that a certain moment requires? Um, and so those are all conversations that happen in fits in spurts. Um, but the intent of the vote last summer was to try and have that full, holistic, comprehensive conversation um, in July and August and September of, of 2020. And that, frankly, didn't and hasn't really happened. And I'm glad you said that because now you've kind of brought me into my next question, which is over the last 12 months since that uh, vote, a lot of things have changed in the city of Atlanta. And this is where I think it's important. We kind of know where narrative is versus the reality, right? So we do know Atlanta has had an uptick in, in crime. But the interesting thing is the data. Again, I'm working with Georgia State University on this. Overall, crime was actually down double digits um, throughout 2020 compared to 2019. And yep. 2021, um, the data is also showing one thing is that maybe we have two things that's in, in real place. Seasonality, which means, i.e., um, like the holiday season when crime does uptake, typically things around property crimes, burglaries, robberies, and also yep. summertime, which we have an unfortunate rise in typically homicides and assaults. But for the most part, even looking at the data, it seems like the year is leveling off. But the one thing that hasn't changed has been the level of people being killed primarily by firearms. And I'm bringing, I'm, I want to preface it that way. Um, the reason being is because I know you've probably gotten a lot of questions about how do we solve crime? How do we solve crime, right? And it's, it's come and become, it's becoming a quicker uh, issue if you look at the data that this is maybe becoming a gun control issue. And so I want to ask first is, has anyone approached you or any other members of the city council or the mayor to your advice about maybe approaching this crime issue as a gun control issue versus a need for citywide changes? Yes, I absolutely. So I, 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 um, appreciate and agree with everything that you just said. Right. So uh, a couple of things, one crime, there has been an uptick in, um, certain types of crime since the pandemic started. Um, the, if you look historically, um, while crime may be up, um, over the last 18 plus months, 24 months, maybe, um, that if you go back and you look at the early to mid 2000s or the early to mid nineties or the early to mid eighties, crime is way down from where it was today. It is way down. Um, from where it was back then, it was down even more 18 months ago. Um, I will, my second thing that comes to mind um, is that I, as a citywide elected official who spends an awful lot of time talking to residents, um, there are a lot of people in Atlanta who don't feel safe. They're white, they're black, they live in Chastain Park, they live in Adams Park. Um, and so that is a reality. Um, that I internalize very much as an elected official um, because looking at statistics is one thing and it is important and it is often a topic of conversation. Um, but if you live in Atlanta and you don't feel safe, that is very real to me. And I want to have a conversation with you both from a, from a data and facts perspective, um, but I also want to be present and accessible and responsive and visible. And when people don't feel safe, I, I take that very seriously. Um, and it makes me same when I hear from either police officers or firefighters who don't feel supported. Um, you know, I can, we can talk about pay raises for our first responders. We can talk about building new police precincts or fire stations. We can talk about buying new equipment. Um, but if people don't feel supported as a, as a member of the governing body like that, matters to me very much as well. Um, and so I always want, um, folks to, to have faith that, that when they reach out to their elected officials and, and share, you know, their thoughts on something or how they feel about something, um, that 
that I want them to, to feel or see or believe that that has been kind of received and internalized. Um, and then my last thought is you're absolutely right about guns. You're absolutely right about guns. And that is not something that can be, you know, I think a lot about different levers that can be pulled at different levels of government. Um, and some levers that can't be pulled by government at all. Um, but the ease of access, um, and the proliferation of firearms, um, over the last X many years, um, absolutely has something to do with, with what we've been experiencing. Okay. Um, okay. And so I want to bring that up because now when it comes to crime, right? So crime over the last 12 months has become the topic of discussion. And I think it's unfair to kind of ask you what you as an individual are going to do about crime when you work on a city council. And so I got to ask the people who are going to vote for this election, uh, what could city council be doing to either lower crime or address gun control? Yeah. Um, on the gun control front, um, that is, mm, you know, I, there are, there are, um, kind of non-policy levers in, in ways that I think we could help influence a conversation um, that that almost has to take place at the state, if not the federal level. Um, and I think as we look to 2018 um, and electing statewide officials or members to the General Assembly or re-electing Senator Warnock um, in terms of who we send to Washington, D.C. to to be a part of and vote on um, laws that, that relate to guns. Like that's, that's a, it's not really a policy answer um, in terms of what can we do on that front. Um, you know, as we, when you talk to me about what can, what can council do or what can city local government do around um, crime or public safety, um, a, a couple of things come to mind. I think, um, I'm going to start long-term um, and then I'll try and drill down into some more immediate things. Um, you know, I think the, the greatest deterrent to crime is um, not to put it too simply, but having a city where our kids are reading proficiently by the end of third grade um, and they graduate from Atlanta public schools, either headed onto a college campus or into a job that pays a living wage um, and that people who, um, people who have, um, who have jobs that pay a living wage, um, and who are able to, to have opportunity and choice in life, um, are far, far less likely to commit violent crimes. Um, and so that is not something that we're going to be able to solve tomorrow. Um, but when I think about kind of five to 10 years down the road, how do we, um, move into a society where people feel quote unquote safer? Um, I think that a large piece of that comes back to folks having a quality education and feeling economically secure. Um, and I do think that there are things that, that city government and then partnering with whether it's Atlanta public schools or, where the philanthropic or business communities can do um, to help on that front. Um, you know, as you, as you look to, to more immediate things, um, you know, I think if, if you think about, um, you know, as an old high school history teacher, if you think about um, kids and providing them with opportunities um, in terms of how we spend afternoons and, and weekends, um, I think, whether it's at rec centers or boys and girls clubs or YMCAs, um, you know, I was in a high school for four years uh, and I saw a whole lot of kids who, who had things to do after school until they went to bed at night. And then I saw a lot of kids who didn't. Um, and so I think as you think about young folks um, and whether it's being engaged or whether it's helping connect them to a job, I had a lot of kids who would come up to me and say, Mr. West, like, I need a job. Um, I had kids who would, who, who would say that to me and, and I'd go look at an Atlanta workforce development agency that was really broken at the time. And, um, 
and I taught students who committed violent crimes. Um, and when they would, you know, were arrested and, and I would talk to them and, and to hear, um, kind of the, the desperation, um, that, that folks felt because they, you know, had been trying to get a job to make some money to help support themselves or their family. Um, frankly, those conversations are part of what made me run for council, um, was to come over here and try and get WorkSource Atlanta into a place that could help high school kids, um, who reached out to them as mine had done. Um, and to think about ways that we can engage 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds, um, part city, part school system, um, in such a way that they are using their time productively and constructively to build themselves, um, and to have a stronger and safer community. Um, a couple other things that come to mind. I mean, if you, if you read, there's been a lot of really well-written articles over the last 12 to 18 months on this topic of kind of safety. Um, and so if you look at the, the data that, that talks about trash and blight and vacant properties and how that kind of environment literally um, ne negatively impacts neighborhood safety. And so addressing those things can positively impact neighborhood safety. I mean, there are a lot of different things um, that, that I think city government and different levels of government can be doing better um, to, um, to have it be that crimes aren't ever committed in the first place. And with that said, I do want to respond to three things that I think people will probably be remiss if I didn't ask you. Sure. Uh, when it talks about crime and policing and things like that, I want to start with the first one, which is some people have said that you were, you alongside two other members of Atlanta City Council were working hard to, to give Buckhead more resources than, than they normally would have gotten, or that you have put money to give Buckhead for an additional police force. Uh, what do you want to say to that? And what about that is either true or false, or do you want to, to, to redirect about? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I hadn't thought about that topic in a while. Um, so last um, December, I believe, December of 2020, um, the Buckhead Coalition came out with a, or the Buckhead CID, perhaps a group of organizations, came out with something either called the Buckhead Safety Plan or the Buckhead Security Plan. I don't remember what the exact title was. Um, and there were different pieces to that conversation. One was kind of integrating neighborhood, different neighborhoods that hire off-duty police officers to, to patrol. Um, one was um, around and doing that in the commercial core. Um, there was a component of that plan that was Buckhead making contributions, financial contributions to support the at promise centers. Um, the one that opened back in 2017 in the Vine City English Avenue area. And then one that we just opened on Metropolitan um, kind of between Pittsburgh and, and Adair Park. Um, and then there's a third that's under construction right next to the Andrew and Walter Young YMCA down on Campbellton. And so I did contribute $25,000 from my council account to the plan to be earmarked to expand programming at those three centers. And the reason I did that is what we just talked about um, is that those youth centers are open after school and on weekends um, to provide a place for um, students to go and play sports, to do their homework, to interact with law enforcement in a positive, healthy way. Um, to Chris 180 has mental health services that are available at each of the promise centers. And so as a citywide rep, um, when I looked at, at a plan that was, um, being proposed by a segment of the city, I was like, I have resources in my council office and I'm going to donate $25,000 to support to, to, to their plan. And the part of it that my dollars are going to go to is expanding services for youth in other parts of Atlanta. And so it actually seemed like a, a perfect thing for an at-large member to do, which is to be supportive of the plan um, while helping fund um, programming for youth around the city. And so Howard Shook and JP Matsukai are my two colleagues on council who represent Buckhead and each of them donated $50,000 from their council offices to other parts of the plan. Um, you know, one of the, there was another media headline that came out about, you know, 
Buckhead is trying to build its own um, police force or, or you know, something that's different than, than what the rest of Atlanta has. Um, and, you know, the Buckhead CID and the Buckhead Coalition was actually looking to Midtown Atlanta, the Midtown Alliance, which has had something called Midtown Blue for the last 15 or 20 years um, that hires off-duty officers in the Midtown Commercial Corps. Um, and Buckhead was looking to replicate that. Um, and people can be opposed to that. In fact, I heard from a lot of people who are like, we don't think Midtown Alliance should be doing that. I, that, I respect that. Um, but what they were doing was replicating something that hiring off-duty officers that had been a practice in in Midtown for over a decade. Um, but my dollars went to the three at Promise Center. Okay. And so now I want to get to two things that I think a lot of people are going to say, one of which is uh, they'll say, King, Matt, we just need, if we're going to solve all these issues, Matt's doing the right thing. We need to just have more police, more police will just solve all the problems. And what do you say to that? Yeah, I think, um, I think we need more. Um, I think we need to be doing more to solve the problems that we face. And I'm, I'm not trying to, to dance around your question. Like, I think we need more pre-arrest diversion services so that they're available beyond 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. I think we need more people who are trained um, to deal with people suffering from mental health issues or substance abuse issues um, and get them, you know, the, the help that they need um, and that that help isn't in the form of, of an armed police officer responding to every single situation that we're asking them to. So I think as, as you look at, and I'm not trying to be too kind of meta on you, but as you look at um, the Atlanta police department and we have a conversation about what's the right size of the department supposed to be, or how many officers are we supposed to have? I do think we need more people. Um, I just, it, to me, there's like a second part of the conversation, which is what are those people going to be doing? Um, and so, you know, if we ask, police officers to respond to violent crimes, to respond to car accidents, to, you know, to respond to, to people call 911 if they are interacting with homeless individuals, right? They're just, we, we call 911 an awful lot and we send armed officers an awful lot of places and we don't have enough people um, to do all the things that we need to be doing. And so do we need more people? Yes. Um, the question for me is, you know, what, what are those people going to be doing? Um, and we do need police officers in society and we need folks who can help prevent violent crime and people who can investigate crimes once they happen. Um, and so, and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the work that, that men and women in the Atlanta police department do. I think we're asking them to do too much. Um, and I think we need to, to hire more people with different types of training to handle different types of situations um, because we're asking police to do too much um, and they're not always trained to, to, and, and we shouldn't even expect them to be able to handle every situation that we send them to. That brings me to one last question and it's about policing and it's probably the biggest issue for you as a city council person. And it won't be this year, actually, it's going to be next year. And that is the looming, potential vote on, well, it will be a vote, it's not a potential, but the looming vote on Buckhead secession. Yeah. Um, you as a current city council person and, you know, should you win again in November, uh, another round of being a city council person, what do you say to that when the biggest push for Buckhead to have cityhood is they want to stop or they want to solve crime? Yeah. So I am completely opposed to Buckhead secession. Um, I I think it would be devastating for the city of Atlanta. Um, I think it would be destabilizing for the region, for the state, for the community of Buckhead. Um, and so that is not the answer to the challenges we face right now. I will also say I completely understand um, that, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. If you have residents who do not feel safe, if you have residents who think, rightly think, that our infrastructure is dilapidated and deteriorating. 
Um, and if you have residents who are increasingly frustrated because their yard trimmings haven't been picked up in nine weeks, I completely understand. And their Buckhead residents aren't alone in those three frustrations. Um, that is true of an awful lot of people that I hear from on a regular basis. And so people are right to be frustrated and angry um, when things that you depend on don't happen. Um, and when the city government is responsible for providing something and it doesn't, at least not with the reliability that you expect and deserve. Um, but I don't think the solution to those problems is to create another city. I don't think it's going to solve, um, you know, you, creating a city doesn't solve public safety and crime challenges. Those have to be solved by doing the things that we've talked about for the last 45 minutes. Um, right. And so I'm committed to doing those things um, with the residents of Buckhead who want and deserve to feel safe and to either drive or bike or walk on, on well-maintained streets and sidewalks uh, and to have their city services delivered um, in the way that, that they deserve to receive them. Okay. And so that brings me to the last, and I think probably the most pressing uh, part of it that a lot of people are going to want to know. And it yeah. is what, what happened with the cop city vote and why did it happen that way? Yeah. The second part of your question is um, a really important one from a, why did it happen this way? I'll say a couple of things. Um, one, this was the toughest vote, toughest topic, topic, toughest conversation of the term without question. Um, I wrestled with this topic an awful lot um, in the months of, of July and August and the beginning of September. Um, there are, I've got really close friends um, who are on both sides, quote unquote, of this issue. I have relatives, siblings who are on different sides of this issue. Um, I have people like yourself, who I consider to be a, a leader, a thought leader, um, had really eloquent words um, at various points in this topic. Um, you know, as I, as I sat in my seat um, when this legislation was introduced, it, you know, it's been a topic for years, frankly. Um, I first had a conversation brought to my attention back in 2017. I know that having a training center on this site has been in the city's facilities master plan for over a decade. Um, and so, you know, that's the piece of this where it's like, it's been talked about for an awful long time. And then when legislation got introduced in mid June, it moved very quickly and clearly um, there are thousands of folks who felt very strongly with a bunch of different topics um, as it related to this issue. And as I sat and I thought about the different stakeholders in mind, um, really there were kind of five groups that, that came to my mind. One was first responders, police officers and firefighters who have been training and working in atrocious conditions for a long time. Um, one group was criminal justice reform advocates who ranged from, you know, we think we should abolish the police all the way to, all right, I understand that you need a training center. Can you walk me through why it needs to be this big or this many acres? Um, there was another group um, in terms of philanthropy, um, a number of people um, or organizations that have offered to help fund the both the training center and the um, 300 other acres, the restoration of the other 300 acres on the site um, that played into this conversation. Um, we can come back and talk more about that if you want to. Fourth group was residents. Um, and I heard from thousands of them and some of them were incredibly opposed to this for one or several reasons. And some of them were incredibly supportive of it, supportive of it. Um, and then the fifth group was, um, green space slash canopy preservationists, um, who also kind of ran the gamut from, you know, don't touch anything on this site to, you know, as you think about, or as this project moves forward, you know, we want to make sure that, that these things are in the legislation or that these things are being considered either as something is, as the site's being designed or as development is happening or what happens after, 
um, the project is completed. Um, and so, you know, and I know I'm, I'm, this is a long answer to your question, but I've obviously spent a whole lot of time thinking about this over the last three or four months. Um, you know, as I sat with all of those stakeholders in mind um, and all of the information in front of me um, and worked on three different occasions um, to make pretty substantial changes to the legislation, um, whether it was in committee at the first instance or then the series of amendments that I offered thanks to feedback that I was receiving from an awful lot of residents um, who reached out privately, publicly, um, and said, you know, you need to, this needs to be in there, or that needs to be in there, or you need to convene this, or that needs to be a promise, and this needs to be a commitment, and that needs to be codified. Um, and so I took all of that to heart um, and included the vast majority, if not almost all, um, of the kind of feedback that I got in terms of here's how this can be improved. Um, and I'm grateful that people took the time to, to do that. Um, and at the end of the day, I sat in that final meeting um, and made the judgment call that that if I put all of that out in front of me, um, that I was in a position where I was prepared to vote yes. Um, the One of the lessons I learned from APS, Maria Karstarfen was the superintendent who I helped hire and worked very closely with um, for three and a half years. And Maria used to always say, as we made really tough decisions there too, um, whether it was the turnaround strategy or school closures, um, a lot of controversial decisions during my four years on the school board as well, um, that people can grieve the outcome, but we can't let them grieve the process. Um, and that is probably the biggest lapse in this conversation um, is that there were way too many incredibly legitimate reasons for people to grieve the process um, because of how things were or weren't handled and were or weren't done. Um, and that weighed heavy on my mind too. Um, and so at the, at the end of the day, I, I voted in favor of it. Um, I stand by that vote. Um, and I have friends and colleagues, you know, friends who are colleagues who were voted the way I did and, and voted the other way. Um, and I have friends and family who are on both sides of that issue as well. And I completely understand where everybody is. Um, and how everybody reached the different conclusions that they reached um, on what was a very tough topic. And I want to bring that up because there's two things about this I want to talk about. One of which is based on what was passed, and I want you to correct me on this one. It seems to be that there's still not really a lack of oversight for the police and first, particularly not the fire department, the police. But also uh, when it comes to this, there wasn't any, there's not anything from what I've seen, I'm going to be clear about this, that this is a joint facility, just again, based on the size of APD and in mm -hmm. comparison to other police and fire departments across the country who use a lot more people to be trained on far less facilities. Why wasn't there, it seems to be there's not any pushback for regulation on the site. There wasn't to, any pushback on how the site should be used or, or any, from my knowledge, knowledge that other places such as DeKalb County or South Fulton or Fulton County or even uh, Brookhaven will be a part of this facility once the law was, I mean, once uh, the, the vote was passed. Like, it seems like they, they got a lot for not really a, a force that really is adequately needing that much space. So what do you want to say to that? Yeah, a couple thoughts. Um, so on the, you know, if you look at um, kind of where if you take the piece of legislation that was introduced in um, June and you sit it side by side to the piece of legislation that was passed in September, um, several things that, that I would want to point out. One is the piece of legislation, the land um, to be leased um, in the first piece of legislation, it, the sentence read, you know, part or all of these 300 and 80 odd acres. Um, and that was condensed, um, down to 85 acres, um, and not more than 85 acres, um, on the most Southwestern portion of the property, um, can be developed. And then it codified for the first time ever that the remaining 265 to 300 acres 
um, are going to be preserved and restored. I mean, uh, why? And I don't want to go too deep down rabbit holes, but if you look at the legislation in one series of amendments that I made, we were talking about um, reforesting the other 270 acres. And I had a couple conversations with folks who said, you know, the correct terminology that we need to use here is restore um, because, you know, there is some reforesting that needs to take place. Much of this land was, was empty back in 1999. Um, there is a portion of the site that has trees that predate 1999 and that piece of land is not going to be those trees, that old growth um, won't be touched in this process. Um, the rest of the site was, was empty back in the early 2000s. And so like the combination of restoring the canopy that does exist and then planting new, healthy, strong canopy um, on the balance of the 300 acres that will connect to Gresham Park and Entrenchment Creek Park and, but for a railroad, um, Constitution Lakes. And so, you know, the requirement of phase one and phase two environmental studies needing to be completed and published publicly and sent to council um, before any development on a site can take place. The cultural landscape uh, was another specific phrase that came from um, feedback that I was getting from a lot of people who you might expect. Um, there were some folks around town who were very active on, on social media about this topic. And as they reached out and either directly or posted on social media and found either inconsistencies consistencies that needed to be corrected in the legislation and were, or ideas about um, the different pieces of this conversation um, that I would just, I would encourage folks to go and people who are still opposed. I, I saw a lead Atlanta classmate of mine last night, who's very much on the other side of this issue. And, and we had a long conversation similar to this one about kind of my thinking and, and how, and to your second question, like how, why did this have to happen this way? And that's a very valid question to ask. Um, on the oversight piece, you know, the, the site is, will be um, under the control of the city of Atlanta after the construction of the training center is finished. It's going to come back to Atlanta um, where it'll cost us about $1.2 million a year to run it, which is less than we're currently spending to, to lease space for our police and fire who train separately. Um, and part of the whole idea around this was to have them at the same site so that they can cross collaborate and, and train not on different places. Um, I know that a lot has been made of, um, the size of the acreage, you know, there, there are kind of two components to this. There's a education classroom piece of this conversation. And then there's an actual training area, um, including a driving course that is fairly large. Um, and so I, you know, I, I looked just people reached out and they said, you know, New York's training center is this size and LA's training center is that size. And if you look at Charlotte or Dallas, you'll find training centers that are actually several times larger than the one that that was proposed here. Um, and, you know, I think, I think a couple of things. Um, I think I know that having looked at at least the New York site, that there isn't a driving course on their public safety training center location. I also know like you do that NYPD officers and New York fired fighters practice their driving somewhere. So even though it's not on that site, they do it somewhere in the state. Um, and this was, this was a proposal that would put the education and the training components for two different public safety departments all together. Um, and that does require a certain amount of space if it's going to have the different aspects of the, of what it means to go through a training process. Um, but I understand, um, kind of one of the questions that kept reverberating in the back of my mind, and it goes to your question around oversight is, you know, do we need a training center? Yes. What kind of training is going to happen at that center um, is a question, both um, physically, but also um, 
kind of mentally and from an academic perspective. Um, and I think that's an important question that we will absolutely continue as, as a mayor or as a city council to have um, kind of oversight and, and a say in the type of training that happens in classrooms and out of classrooms on a training center. And I think that's a really important question as it kind of goes back to the conversation of the whole last hour in terms of um, kind of what is public safety, quote unquote, look like moving forward and what role does training play in that conversation? And so now that brings me to something else, which is we talked a lot about just a lot of heavier things, but things that are important. Um, I want to say this now, you are somebody who is running for re-election in the city of Atlanta. And so I want to actually give you some time to talk about your campaign for this uh, next go around, right? And I, I think I'd be remiss to not give you the opportunity to speak on uh, what you're running about this year um, and then what you anticipate to, to do once you get back on city council in January. Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. Um, so as I think about um, kind of the last four years and then the next four years, um, I am uh, two of the things that I'm probably most proud of um, of this first term are the $100 million housing opportunity bond that we passed in January of this year that had been introduced last spring and then COVID slowed down our, our work on that. Um, and then you know, it's the largest investment that the cities ever made in housing affordability. Um, the second thing that has been really important to me as a council member, and I've also served on the board of Invest Atlanta for the last year and a half because of my role as chair of our community development committee, and shifting the mindset and focus of our economic development agency um, toward a new economic mobility plan that's got four pillars of community-focused development in underserved areas, the creation and attraction of middle-wage jobs, jobs that pay $40,000, $50,000, $60,000, $80,000, especially those that don't require a college degree, um, better supporting, way better supporting small businesses and entrepreneurs, and then pulling the levers that city government can pull to help build wealth in communities of color. Um, and the framework for all of that passed council and the Invest Atlanta board last fall and so, you know, plans and frameworks are great, um, but seeing continued bond issuances um, around housing affordability on Monday of this week, I introduced a piece of legislation with nine of my colleagues to create a reoccurring local funding stream for housing to set aside. Um, we're going to phase it. We would phase it in over three years, but 2% of the general fund budget, it's about $14 million um, to go to housing affordability every year. And as opposed to just bond issuances where you issue the bonds once and you get the money and then you spend it and the money is gone. Um, implementing that mobility plan. And so what, you know, the number of affordable housing units at 60% of AMI and below that the Invest Atlanta board has approved in the last 20 months or so is well over 5,000. Um, and so continuing that it will now be in construction, some of which are coming online. And so, you know, how continuing work on housing affordability, implementing with fidelity the framework that is the economic mobility plan, um, we're going to go to the voters in the spring um, and have a conversation around infrastructure, um, whether it's sidewalks and streets and bike lanes, um, fire stations, green space expansion, um, and making sure that that project list is quality and that it is implemented if the voters approve it um, with more fidelity than was the case with the first round of Renew and TSPOS that happened back in 2015 and 2016. Um, and the last thing, I'll stop. The thing that I wish I had made progress on over these last four years and didn't was as a former school member and former teacher, a conversation between the city and the school system around ensuring every kid in Atlanta has access to quality early childhood education. 90% of a kid's brain gets developed before they turn five years old. Um, and that means that that before you walk into kindergarten, 90% um, of your brain is developed. And that means that years birth to ages three or four are really important. Um, and I wish we had made more progress on a 
on a partnership between APS and the city of Atlanta on that front. And that is something that I'm deeply passionate about and committed to and want to help realize over these next four years. Okay. And so before we get out of here, there are two things I'd like to ask all of my guests. I'm going to ask you now, the first of which is what is something about you or in this case, your time with the city council that people misconstrue. And then the second is if there's one thing you could change about the city of Atlanta right now, what would it be? So those are your last two questions. Got it. Um, something that I misconstrue, that people misconstrue, you know, I think, um, Frankly, I think we just spent an hour talking about it. Um, you know, the, the votes. Yeah, the, the votes that have that have kind of taken place um, around, you know, public safety funding and or training um, have obviously been incredibly passionate conversations, both in the summer of 2020 and the fall of 2021. Um, and so, whether or not people misconstrue it or not, and and whether they agree with me or not, um, I appreciate. The chance to have a conversation like this uh, that I hope help people kind of know where my mind was at and what I was thinking and what I was wrestling with um, and where I ultimately landed. Um, and so whether you agree with it or not, I just want, I think people deserve to know as much about what's going on in the minds of their elected officials as possible, um, which is why I'm always down to talk to anybody. My cell phone number is on every piece of mail my campaign has ever sent out. It's at the bottom of every email I ever send. It's 404-408-0980. Okay, um, that was that was very bold. That was very, nah, very bold. No, nah, that's fine. It's been all over Twitter. Um, okay. That's, I'm, I'm here to, to uh, that's why I'm here, literally, is to hear from folks. Um, and then the second, one thing that I would change about Atlanta, um, oof, Um, man, I don't even, I don't even, I mean, it, it, that's such a layered question. There's so many different, um, it's like the one thing you could change uh, saying something like, I'm not going to say it. It's too broad. Um, we'll make it narrow I, then. How about, yeah, oh, I, know. Well, I know, no, I'm definitely gonna answer, but it's like, I wish I wish that there was a way that I could be that I think what it keeps coming back to is I want people to feel like economically secure. I think that's why I'm so passionate about housing or connecting people to middle wage jobs is like, I want, it's, it's a desire for people to have like opportunity and choice in life and to, and to the, I have pictures of residents popping up into my mind who just have so much stress and anxiety and trauma around, um, struggles with, with paying light bills and feeding their kids and having a home that's affordable. And like, I just, I wish and want to continue to try and write and implement good public policy such that people feel like they can provide for themselves and their families um, and feel kind of secure and in, in financially and economically um, in, in their neighborhoods. And, and that, yeah, it's a desire to feel like that, that people can provide for themselves and their families um, and how government can help do that. Hey, that works. And so my last and final question is what's making you happy? What's making me happy? Um, spending, uh, now that we've kind of started to spend more time in person with one another, uh, I love uh, spending time with and continuing to deepen friendships um, that I've built, some recent, some over the longer term. Um, you know, over a Chipotle burrito, a Diet Coke, a Sweetwater 420, um, or at a country music or rap concert, or watching an episode of West Wing, kind of throwing a whole bunch of different things all together. Uh, that um, works, man. That works. Yep. Okay, that works. Um, and so before we get out of here, 
Um, if people want to donate to your campaign or if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Please don't give out your number again. <laughs> well, so you go to mattwestmoreland.com. Uh, there's a there's a donation link there, which I appreciate. But there's also a my email address and my cell phone number are both there as well. So <laughs> people are are welcome to to reach out. Always always around to chat. I'm like a good millennial. I sleep with my phone, so I'm never too far away. If that works, y'all. Uh, once again, y'all, this is Matt Westmoreland, and I actually want to thank Matt for coming out. Um, Matt being one of the city council members who, as you can see, is very much available. Um, and I'm glad that he actually did this interview today with us. Um, I hopefully, um, whether or not, you know, you agree with everything uh, that stands, um, he has been one of the few city council members who's been pretty open across the board on everything and pretty transparent on everything. And so um, I hope that you gained a lot from this interview. And if you liked it, please like and review wherever you heard this podcast at. And if you haven't already, please sign up for my newsletter at iamkingwilliams.substack.com, iamkingwilliams.substack.com, or patreon.com slash iamkingwilliams. And I thank you all, and I'll see you all next week. Oh, once again, this is brought to you by Local Plus. So go Local Plus, G-O-C-G-O-L-O-C-O-P-L-U-S.com.